0: So we are continuing in our series of messages from the Psalms, and today we find ourselves in Psalm 65. Uh, You should find that, I think, on page 567 of your pew Bibles. We'll be using all 13 verses as our text for the message this morning. If you are able, would you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you vows shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The, the river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly. Settling its ridges. Softening it with showers. And blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing to that reading of it to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. So I hope that you're sort of picking up on the habit now of, I I don't usually read the titles or the headings to the Psalms for the most part. But I hope you've gotten into the habit of looking at those um, when they are available. And you'll notice that in this one we're not given any... Hint of what the circumstances were that led to the writing of this psalm. Uh, there are some who think that possibly it was written uh, for the celebration of the feast of Booths. The feast of Booths was held fifteenth uh, of the month of Tishri. Um, that's October, November, our calendar, harvest time. It was a celebration of God's provision for the people in the harvest, uh, a reminder of how He had provided for them in the wilderness. And those who think of that way about this passage, in support of that, look at verses 1 to 3, and they see the stress that's made on praise and vows and prayer being made to God and atonement and those things being associated with Zion. And again, since we're all good Old Testament scholars here, uh, you would be well aware of the fact that not only is the Feast of Booth celebrated on the 15th of the month of Tishri, but The Day of Atonement is celebrated on the 10th of the month of Tishri. So literally five days before the Feast of Booths these people would have been going through the elaborate ceremony and ritual of the Day of Atonement where the sins of the people are atoned for by the high priest and and God makes atonement for them through that process. And so that seems to be an entirely fitting and appropriate way to view this psalm. And yet as David is writing this psalm, it doesn't seem to me, at least, that he is focused on some general principle, some generic kind of annual feast. It seems there's something specific driving David's heart in this psalm, and so we're going to examine this really a beautiful psalm. This psalm uh, commentators mention that that of all the the that sort of harvest hymns that we tend to sing thanking God for his provision this psalm is probably the most beautifully written of all. It puts the rest to shame. You can literally feel the liveliness of nature as it's bursting with life and bounty as David describes it for us. So we're going to examine this psalm under three points, three heads. Absence, atonement, and abundance. First we begin with absence. Notice how David begins this psalm. He's talking directly to God, and he tells God, praise is due to you. Now, that's ESV. You could translate that as praise awaits you. The King James, New King James, the NIV, take it that way. Perhaps you might be able to see it, as the the word can also be translated, as that praise being preceded by or accompanied by a period of silence before God, as the NASB um, addresses it. We might see this as an awe-filled, reverential, expectant silence, the kind that David gave to us. You might remember just back in Psalm 62, verse 1, when he said, my, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Perhaps this is even the silence following the prayers and requests that have been made to God Waiting for that answer from God to be given. And yet, we understand that the praise is due to God. It's waiting for God in Zion. Remember, Zion is the place where God has commanded that all praise and worship is to be offered and directed to Him. That praise is due, and it is waiting. And it's due because God has actually answered that prayer. You notice that in verse 5. You have answered us, David says. And so he goes on to say that vows, those vows that we promised you in the prayers we made when we asked you for this, those vows will now be paid. They will be completed. We will do as we have promised to do because you have answered us. And notice the title of God in verse 2. You may not see it as that, but verse 2 actually gives us a title for God. He isn't simply the one that his people pray to. You notice that? He is the one who hears those prayers. What an encouragement to us as we go to God. We aren't just praying to empty space. We are praying to the God who actually hears our prayers. And since he is the one who actually hears prayer, notice what David says. All flesh shall come to you. Notice, not all faithful Israelites will come to you. All flesh will come to you. So we might wonder then, what has the content of this prayer to God been? And what has been the answer he's given that causes such praise to be waiting for him, due to him? Well, Derek Kidner, in his commentary, believes that this psalm, the structure of it, suggests that the people of God have, because of their iniquities and transgressions that David mentions have brought down God's disfavor upon them. And it has been brought down on them in the form of feeling estranged from God, distanced from God. That covenant relationship seems to be not there from their perspective. And given the stress in the last half of the psalm on bountiful harvest and plenty and abundance of water... Kindner suggests that God has also shown his disfavor through some degree of drought and shortage of food, crops, livestock as a result of those things. In other words, if you look at verse 4, the people have not been experiencing those blessings that David is rejoicing in in verse 4 being chosen by God and drawn near to Him and being able to dwell in His course, satisfied with the temple and its holiness and all the goodness of God's house. They haven't been experiencing that and they have lacked what God gives them in His answer in verses 9 through 13. Absence of God's gracious, favorable presence with His people. And so that takes us to the next point, which is atonement. Notice how in verse 3, David expresses a recognition, uh, a confession, that iniquities had prevailed against him. That word means that, that iniquities had been very strong, not only in him, but against him. The word can also mean that he was overwhelmed by iniquities. In other words, he's fallen into sin. It doesn't seem that David's alone though because he begins to include the rest of the people in that, his his iniquities and our transgressions. But it seems as he and they together came before God and sincerely confessed their sin and truly repented of their sin before God that God has now answered those prayers and has graciously graciously granted them David says atonement <clears throat> now atonement is an important word in our theological language in our in our understanding of our salvation atonement in its basic form means to cover something and so the idea of atonement in this biblical context is that God has taken our sin, which is so obvious and so deadly against him, and he has now placed a covering over it. Now, if you dig into that deeper, you find through the Old Testament that what that means is that in the context of the sacrificial system God established for them, in the Holy of Holies, thinking about that Day of Atonement, for instance, in the Holy of Holies, inside that Ark of the Covenant... Are the Ten Commandments. That's God's law. That tells us what we're supposed to do and what we're not allowed to do, and it also does what? It condemns us because none of us can keep it. Any of us who put that standard up to us fall far short of it. We've broken God's law. And so above that command, those commandments are the lid of the Ark, which is The mercy seat above which the cherubim have their wings outstretched and above which God dwells to speak with his people and to care for them on the day of atonement the high priest would come in and would take blood from the sacrifice blood that had been shed remember without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins and would take that blood and would bring it in and would literally pour that blood out on the mercy seat Effectively covering the commandments that we've broken. The blood covered over our sin. And so that's exactly what David has in mind here, that, that God has graciously granted them atonement, the covering of their sins, allowing them to be brought back into a re- reconciled relationship with them. And so now, notice, through atonement, God's gracious presence and favor is no longer absent. Now, notice, they don't come and seek out God, and they don't come on their own initiative and come near to God because they're such good people. David really is very good in his theology here. He says, you choose us, and you draw us near to you. So that we can, notice, not just come to your temple once in a while and visit you, and then have to go away, but you choose us and draw us near so that we can dwell there. So we can remain in your blessed, gracious, favorable presence. See, in sinfulness, they had told a lack of God's goodness. And and, and notice how he talks about the, the, the holiness of God's house. They had... As they looked at that holiness in that temple, if they felt any reaction, it was probably fear and terror, right? Because they knew they were anything but holy and they were in disfavor with God. But now that atonement has been given, they are able to be satisfied and rejoice in the holiness of God's house. Now, as they as they do this, look at verse 5. David says that you have answered us with righteousness. Now, we understand God is righteous. And therefore anything God does is righteous. So anytime God answers us, it's with righteousness, right? Because he can't do anything but that. And David certainly I think has that in mind as he's making this statement. But I think we should also not forget this whole idea of atonement that David is focused on here. When God answered them and answers us by providing atonement for sin, God is also making us righteous. Right? He's reconciling us to him. He is answering us literally with righteousness. A Righteousness is not of our own. That's what Luther came to understand, right? You remember, Luther was this guy who, in his early days before his true conversion, while he's trying to be a priest, is struggling with the guilt of his sin. And he can't get away from the fact, he's a lawyer, actually. He understands law, and he gets the fact that he's guilty of all of this. And he goes, and some guys would go and confess every day for five or ten minutes. Luther would go in for two to four hours, and confess every sin he could think of and would get absolution would walk out feeling joyful and happy until he got back to his room and remembered one sin he forgot to confess and all of his joy would leave him at one point one of his, one of his uh, mentors asked him, Luther, do you love God? and Luther actually at one point actually answered and said, love God there are times when I hate him He felt God was this righteous judge just waiting to pounce on him for any sin he committed until he was reading Romans 1 in preparation for teaching his students about it. And he read that the way we are justified is by a faith that is not ours. It's a righteousness that God gives to us in Christ. And Luther says, when I came to understand That that righteousness isn't mine that my salvation depends upon. It's Christ's. He said it was like the gates of paradise opened up. And I walked right through them. That's really what this psalm looks like, isn't it? David has found atonement given to him through God. And what does the rest of the psalm sound like? Paradise, right? We're going to see that as we work our way through it. And notice, God is not now just the God who hears prayers, but he is the God of our salvation. And because all mankind is sinful, especially those ungodly nations, notice what David says, God is the God of our salvation, the hope, what does he say, of all Israel and of the Sea of Galilee? No, he says, God is the God of our salvation, the hope of all the nations to the ends of the earth and the furthest seas. You see how David isn't focused on Israel. David is focused on God as the God of all the earth. And that all belong to him. And all need to respond to him in this way. All need his salvation. See, here through the atonement, as we move on in this psalm, this is where we find if you want to think of it this way, again, in this harvest context, the first fruits of that praise that is due to God, that has been waiting for God in Zion, as we find David now rejoicing over who God is. See, David, I've been telling you that the last four psalms were the cry of the earthly king to God, the messianic king, and that there would be four psalms coming behind that would be The the divine king stressing his enduring kingdom that, that is undisturbed. His reign has no disruption to it at all. And that's what we find here. David, the earthly king, has found his earthly kingdom shaken because of iniquity and transgression. But notice what he's rejoicing in now. God, the divine king, enjoys a completely undisturbed reign over the entire earth and everything that's in it. He rejoices in God's total power, in God's majesty, in God's sovereignty. God is clothed with might. We think of the mighty mountains. God is the one who established those. That's how mighty. He's so mighty, he's actually dressed in might. He calms the roaring of the seas and their waves. We heard that in in the other psalm that we read together, right? Now, understand in scripture, the tumultuous motion and action and Chaos of the seas often is a picture of the wickedness of mankind. And so it's not surprising that David goes on to say he calms the roaring of the seas and their waves and what? The tumult of the peoples. God calms the sinfulness, the wickedness, the tumult. Of the peoples, just as he does the seas and their waves and their power and chaos. And he does all of that for a reason. Again, notice, not so that all who dwell in Israel. It's so all those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. At what they can see of your majesty and your character. Now this part you might be thinking about Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, The people on the ends of the earth are rejoicing because they see they're in awe because they see every day David pictures morning and evening like they are people who walk out of their door and go about their daily routine. As as morning and evening proceed forth, David says, people look at that and they're amazed at the consistency of of God's creation, at at how dependable it is for the way we order and structure our lives. They see terrifying seas that threaten them and suddenly become calm. They know they can't have that kind of power. And I think David is even here talking, to a degree at least, about the common grace which God extends to the very ends of the earth, even those people who will not respond to him in real true confession and repentance. Yet God gives rain to the just and the unjust alike. He causes crops to abound and even the ungodly often have abundance and more than they need. And they should be led by those gifts of God, that common grace of God, to have the same kind of right and righteous response to God that David is demonstrating here as their king as their savior, but also as their creator and redeemer and sustainer. But as you read those last verses, 8 or 9 through the end of the, of the psalm, the lively, vivid, amazing abundance that David describes in these closing verses go beyond simple common grace, right? This is not your ordinary common rainfall and growth that you might see. This is where Kidner suggests in his understanding of this psalm that what we see here is God's corrective hand in some degree having caused drought and shortage for the people. Now that that sinfulness has been satisfied, has been atoned for and covered, that God is now visiting the earth Visiting, by the way, God is always present. But when it says that God visits, that means he's coming in a special way either to bless or to judge. In this case, to bless. God visits now in blessing since repentance and confession and atonement have been made. And he brings rain to the dry earth. And he brings it, not just a shower, but he brings it in abundance. He waters the earth, David says. And then he goes on. And says through that water he greatly enriches the earth. And that's not even enough. He goes on to say that the river of God is completely full of water. You get the idea? In a sense there's water everywhere when they had a shortage of it. But notice there's no flooding. There's no destruction. It's perfect abundance of life-giving water. And, and David rightly says that God provides to the people their grain. Too many times we tend to think that we do this by our own hand. I was actually commenting with, with Bonnie yesterday as I was working through some of this. There's an old movie, Jimmy Stewart movie. I uh, thought of it as soon as I read this passage and... and um, uh, He's, he's a father of a family and, and it's in civil war days and his wife, they're sitting at the table ready to eat and his wife says, ask him to pray and thank God for the food they're about to eat and he's not really a very godly man and, and so he closes his eyes and says, thank you Lord for this crop that I planted that I watered that I harvested and that I prepared, thank you well, that's what David's guarding against here, right? God is the one who provided. Otherwise it could never have done. And look at the detail he gives us and how God has provided that. He says that God, so you have prepared it. Some of those who do gardening and farming among us might appreciate this more than, than the rest do. But notice as you look at these verses, God is the one who waters the furrows. You know those little valleys in between each row. You water the furrows thoroughly, abundantly, when you plowed that ground there were high sharp ridges that are left behind those rains now soften those ridges and settle them down and and round them and smooth them off you bless its growth you crown the year this bounty is like a crown that you placed upon this year that we're living in David says and then he goes on to say your wagon tracks this may seem a bit odd but your wagon tracks overflow with abundance what does David have in mind here well as a farmer if you went out to get the harvest that you were picking some years you go out and there's not enough to cover the bottom of the wagon some years it's kind of half full or full David is saying you've given us so much that it is so abundant that as we're pulling the wagon along the stuff is falling off the back and dropping in the tracks that the wagon makes as we head back home we don't even need to go pick it up It's just so much. Now there's also maybe another thing included in this because the word that's really used there when it talks about wagon tracks and abundance, overflow with abundance, the word that's used there also can mean fatness. Actually, fatty ashes. How would you ever get wood ashes that are fatty? Well, obviously, by burning wood on an altar and burning a burnt offering on top of that altar so that the fat that is cooked off soaks down into the ashes. That's the picture here. And so David may very well be here referring back to atonement once again. The abundance of blessing we have is through your atonement. Those fatty ashes that represent the leavings behind of what has been done to receive atonement from you. And then we know that in scripture the wilderness is usually portrayed as a desert, right? John the Baptist prepared for his ministry out in the wilderness and and, and all the other prophets came out of the wilderness, the desert, the barren areas. And yet notice what David says here in this abundance of God. The wilderness now is not portrayed as a desert but it's a place that's overflowing with rich pasturage for flocks. The desert is not a desert anymore. It's a pasture. David describes the hills, the valleys and the meadows as if they are actually living, responsive beings which in response to God's tender, life-giving care are literally dressing themselves up in their finest for him. The hills gird themselves with joy, David says. Most likely what David has in mind is that the abundance is so great that the hills are so lush that as we look at them, we're filled with joy, right? You've experienced that when you look out at it, a particularly beautiful scenery. It brings a joyful response to your heart. David is seeing it through the eyes of God's grace and his provision for them. The meadows clothe themselves with abundant flocks. They're overloaded, even though, by the way, the desert is also pasture land. The meadows are covered with flocks. The valleys dress themselves in an abundance of glorious grain when there's been a shortage, when they felt God's disfavor. And David concludes by essentially saying that all of nature is joining together to shout and sing for joy as God visits that nature with his gracious presence, as God visits the earth. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, when he looked at this, said, now we understand valleys and meadows and hills, they're, they're impersonal, inanimate things. They can't shout, they can't sing, they, they can't do these things. This is just a poetic picture. Well, yes, I I get that in a sense, but but then I go back to the psalm that that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And what does the psalmist say? Their voice has gone out into all the world. And there's not a voice or language where it's not heard. This is creation doing what it's meant to do, revealing the glory and the bounty of the God who made it. So as we seek to apply this, we have here another episode in David's life. We don't know what it was, what caused it. But as I was reading this text and working through it, I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. And I've got that in your bulletins. Um, David talks about God as the one who hears prayer. But... He hadn't been seeming to hear prayer and they felt distance and they were feeling his disfavor. But notice what Isaiah says in this passage. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, God of our salvation, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face, covered, hidden his face, from you so that he does not hear. See, it's our sins that creates that problem. That's what David is teaching us in this psalm. And we have that same problem, do we not? Do we not often experience that absence of God's gracious presence because of our sin? David shows us the answer to that is to go to God in prayer. Not just any prayer, not just God make me feel better. God quit being mean, quit being mad at me. But we need to go to God with a prayer of confession and repentance. True faith, true repentance, faith in God's promises that He will atone for sins. As as the Apostle John put it, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, how long, how often do we suffer the absence of God's full, gracious presence and blessing in our lives because we don't rightly see our sin or deal with it? David is telling us, get with God, confess your sin, and receive his atonement so that you can receive his blessing, his full, gracious presence. David also knew another thing that we need to be reminded of though, and that is that we cannot cover our own sin. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. There's nothing we can do to accomplish that. Only God can atone for sin. Because the debt of that sin against our holy God is so infinitely great that it requires an infinitely high and holy price to be paid in order to satisfy that Debt in order to cover that sin. You see, without the shedding of blood, as I said before, there's no remission of sins. And, and we're told clearly in Scripture that that shedding of blood isn't the blood of bulls and goats, even though God temporarily used that to, to deal with the people's sins. It was temporary and it was typical. It was pointing forward to the real answer that God would give with righteousness. Which would be nothing less than the death of his own son to atone for our transgression. So that we could be reconciled by his abundant grace toward us in Christ. Secondly, as we look at this psalm, I've said before that in the second book of the Psalter, O. Palmer Robertson, as he's looking at the structure of the psalms, says that this second book of the Psalter is really focused, there's still conflict with the enemy and the righteous, with the wicked and the righteous, but that in this second book of the Psalter, the psalmists are really focused on not just conflict with the wicked, but on communicating with the wicked. That's why you find not Yahweh as God's name most of the time in this book of the Psalter, but Elohim, the name that the nations would have used to speak about God. And we see that clearly in this psalm. It is Elohim that's used. And notice what David says. To you shall all flesh come. Not just Israel. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas and the waves and the tumult of the peoples. And remember, the peoples refers to those other people. The Gentiles, the ungodly, the wicked. You see, this is about us. This psalm is about us. How is it, in line with the true theme in this psalm about atonement, how is it that God stills the tumult, the sinfulness of the peoples? It is only by Him choosing them, by Him drawing them near to Himself, by leading them by His Spirit, the abundant water that's referenced all through this psalm, His Spirit, to pray the prayer of confession, repentance, and faith. And then, as they do that, by making atonement for their sins as well, so that they too can know the abundance of His gracious presence among them. See, we must be committed to sending the gospel out to the ends of the earth, so that all who live there and dwell there will be able to be awed at God's signs and rejoice in Him. But how does God do this? How does God... Atone for their sins. Well, again, this promise has been from the beginning, right? God made the promise that the seed would come before there was a Jewish people. God made the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing not to one nation, but to all the nations of the earth. And so, through his gracious promise to send a seed, the Messiah, the Messiah is to come and do what? Crush Satan's head and undo the curse. Redeem and atone for the people of God, those that God had chosen and called near to Him. I said earlier that those final verses in this psalm speak about an abundance that's just way beyond common grace. And there is a real sense in which we should understand, as David has talked about iniquities and atonement, that this abundance that's pictured for us here is nothing less than the abundance of the blessings that we have in Christ, as we find that we have been atoned by His blood. Remember, we're told that we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, right? We're seated with Him in the very heavenlies. What, what language could you use to describe that? Well, this is a beginning. This is a beginning to express that abundance. The Old Testament prophets and Isaiah is a good example in chapter 35, 1 and 2 of his book when they spoke about the coming of the Messiah, the day when he would come and establish his kingdom. Here's the way Isaiah described it and the others did this as well. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Does that sound like our song? Shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. It's exactly what David is describing here. The atonement that comes through the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. And you may not think it, but in Christ, those verses are already coming to pass right here among us. As Christ has poured out his spirit like gracious rain in abundance on the desert places that are those hearts of stone that we have, those hearts that are barren and dry and completely dis- devoid of life, as He pours out His Spirit on those hearts, those hearts that had been all of that suddenly come to vivid, living, eternal life. Death to life. Remember Jesus told the Samaritan woman when he asked for a drink and she's talking to him about the water, is your water better than uh, what's well our father Abraham dug? And Jesus says, if you understood the water that I'm offering you, not water, the Holy Spirit, you understand that when a person drinks it, Jesus said, it will become within him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's pictured in this psalm, is it not? The river of God is full of water. It's abundant everywhere. And so that's what's happening in our own hearts and lives through the Holy Spirit and Christ's work of intercession for us. But the truth is that it goes even beyond that because there is fruit abundant in our lives as well, hopefully becoming more abundant, and that is the beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, right? Goodness, gentleness, all those things are supposed to be blossoming in us as a result of that spirit. But these verses point even further than that. When Christ comes on that last day and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, mankind and the earth are both going to be finally and fully released from the curse of sin, and we will all be able to be exactly what God always intended us to be. Perfect creations perfectly reflecting and rejoicing in His glory. And declaring it to any who will hear and listen. That's what's being expressed in this psalm. The people in David expressing praise. And nature itself expressing it. But how do we know that Jesus Christ is this Messiah? How do we know that he has the almighty sovereign power of God. To still the roaring waves and seas. And to still as well that tumultuous wickedness of sinful men. Well Jesus actually gave us what you might think of as a living parable to show us that. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, starting around verse 37, we have this picture of Jesus and the disciples getting into a boat and sailing across the sea. And as they do, Jesus lies down and goes to sleep. And a great storm arises on the sea. And powerful waves are are threatening to swamp the boat and drown the disciples. And they are in fear of dying. And when they wake Christ up, don't you care? What does Jesus do? He stands in the boat and majestically, sovereignly, shouts at the storm, Shut up! Be still! And immediately, everything stops. And his disciples, who've been with him all this time, are so amazed, they say to each other, What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So he stills the wind and the waves, but... I don't know if you ever noticed it, but going from chapter 4 to chapter 5, you know the next thing Mark tells us? The boat landed on the opposite shore in the land of Gadarene, a Gentile area, and as they leave the boat and go out on shore, they are literally assaulted by a crazy man who is tumultuous, chaotic, destructive, can't be kept in chains, can't be clothed, is out of his mind, possessed by demons, a legion of them, And yet when Christ approaches this man, he gives a command and the demons leave him. And when all the people of that area came out to see this man that they had known as a wild man who was uncontrollable, do you know what they found? They found him clothed and sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet. They found him to be a follower of Christ, which is what we are all to be. You see, Christ is the one who stills our tumult and our wickedness through atonement. And as he does that, our response then is to give him the praise that is due to him in Zion, in the church, for all his goodness and grace toward us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and how grateful we are for the atoning work of Jesus Christ, for his blood that literally covered our sins and our transgressions, And brought us back into a reconciled relationship with you. Sadly we confess how little our hearts are actually moved with joy and rejoicing. When we think of these things. As David was in this psalm. Lord give us hearts that understand these realities. That respond to them. that, That well up with joy and rejoicing as we consider what you have done for us. In atoning for our sins in Christ. Adorn us with righteousness and help us to serve you and to lead others into your gracious presence as well. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.